not supposed to express your opinions. And I mean, I had, I had my own opinions. I had my own uh, thoughts on things. But especially as an officer, you're just not supposed to make those so publicly known. And so I really put, sometimes put my head in the sand and just kept going forward. Um, sometimes it was a good thing because I then could easily keep my mouth shut and not get into trouble. And sometimes detriment because you just, you just sometimes aren't engaged enough to know all that's going on. Fortunately, I have a wife that is fully engaged. <laughs> and she would make sure I know, and she's still today, make sure I know some of the things going on and, and whatnot. And it's helpful when your wife is not engaged in the military and that she can, she can express things. But one of the things that some of you may have seen in the last couple of days deals with the military vaccine mandate for COVID. I don't know if some of you have seen that or been paying attention to that. But every year they have to do the National Defense Authorization Act. It's the bill that gets passed and there's laws and rules and regulations that develop out of that, and then not to mention the money that the military gets. But Congress dictates through that a lot of things that the military ends up doing. Some things are very stupid. One of the things they dictated for the military to do a while back that now they're going, mm, maybe we shouldn't have done that, but it's already engaged and now they're trying to figure out how to make that work, was bringing all the medical under one purple roof. When we talk about purple, that means civilians and, and military together. Under one purple roof that all the different military branches fall under that and they were trying to make one size fit all. And you just can't do that uh, because different branches have different needs and then there's uh, different places that you're at that some are not at and they tried to dictate. Uh, when I was at Fort Irwin, which is about 45 minutes to an hour away from anything. And they were trying to dictate there that, well, you don't need this, and I go, but we don't have anything else. But in any case, I say all that to the point that uh, they're working a deal. I have not known that it has passed or that they have voted on the bill, but to get the National Defense Authorization Act passed, the Democrats has agreed to not to mandate that they don't mandate. Essentially saying that the uh, vaccine, the COVID vaccine, the military cannot mandate that the military personnel get that. Now, the, the, the biggest part of this that's not in that, the wording is not there, that I think is a thing that we need to be praying about, is there are thousands of soldiers and, and other military personnel that have stood up and said, I'm not going to take it. I'm not going to be bullied into doing something that we're finding out is very harmful. And they have faced different consequences. Some have been kicked out of the military. I have a very good friend who has received a GOMAR. A GOMAR is a general officer a memorandum of recommend, re, <laughs> reprimand and essentially crushes their career is what it does. Um, it goes into their official file and they will not see promotions. They will not see anything and eventually could get them out of the, out of the army. And they're at about 18, 19 years in, so they're just shy of getting retirement. Um, 
So there are thousands of individuals who have stood up, stood firm. They have put in religious accommodations and been denied, and they have suffered consequences on it. And what the Defense Act doesn't state in it is that they have to fix that. All it states in it is that they have to take and, and report back to Congress about how they might fix it. And then if they do fix it, there are some individuals that have faced consequences they, at this point, shouldn't have faced. And I think that's where we as a church need to be lifting these people up who stood for their faith and stepped out and willingly, some at a point that they could, should have been able to retire uh, or very short of being retired and had to be forced out. And it's awesome that they stood for their faith in that manner, but they suffer the consequences. So we need to be in prayer about how are they going to fix that. And I think that's an important piece of it. So be on the lookout for that and be in prayer for that because I mean, these people have, have put their lives literally over the last 20 years for those who have served on the line um, and willingly did what they were told and put in religious accommodation because we should have that and we're denied and now face that. So I think uh, it's great that the mandate is being removed, but at the same point, there's a pain for those who stood up that are faced with that. So just keep that in prayer. Before I get into our real study, I've had a few questions over the last several months as we've come on staff concerning our kids and do we have kids, and on and on. And somebody said, well, you should share your story. So I'm going to share a little bit about that tonight, um, just so you can see where we come from and, and who we are and, and get to know us better as we serve you. And I think that's important. It's always helped me to understand who my leadership was, where they're coming from, and, and what their life is like. And Didi and I will be married. Uh, we just passed 36 years in August. Um, of marriage, and early on, we were doing the, what couples do and attempting to have kids, and nothing was happening, and we looked at the medical side of it, and they could not even give us a, a firm maybe. It was, this would probably not work. It was less than 50% for us to work, and that's not that, and the cost then, the military wasn't picking up any of the cost back then, and the cost was very high. Not that you can put a price on the kids for those who, who have have kids, you know that they are priceless, but it was adding insult to injury for us to put out the money for that and not where the direction we felt God was taking us. And so we go, okay, God, what are we supposed to do? And we began praying about and seeking after him and what he should do. And of course, what do you normally do? If you're not going to do the medical side, you look at adoption. And so we considered adoption in the normal sense of little kids, um, into our lives, and we didn't feel that was what we were supposed to do either. I'm going, okay, God, you gave us a desire for kids, but you're not giving us these kids. You're not giving us into the box that we normally would expect, expect of either birth or adoption of children. You're not giving it to us. What, what's going on? And we're going through life, trying to figure this out, and, and just confused and hurting every time that... Uh, there's no, no pregnancy, nothing going on, and we're going, okay, God. And we just were praying and, and crying out to him about it. And he began to bring some young ladies into our life as we were serving in the military. 
And they came from different walks, from different places, different families into our lives. And we're mentoring and guiding them. And oftentimes in the military, you are there for a moment and then you leave or they leave and you move on with life. Uh, but in each one of these cases, they stayed in contact with us. And we continued to, to really, in a lot of ways, be a parental figure to them. And each one over time started calling us mom and dad. And we weren't really catching it for the most part uh, until probably two years after the first one's come in our life. And, and one we, we really almost lost uh, in our lives for 20 years. We had lost her because we didn't realize and understand what God was doing. And so uh, we finally dawned on us. It's like God hitting us with a baseball back. <laughs> Can't you see what I'm doing before you? And so over the last 20 plus years, uh, these young ladies have come into our lives and we're just guiding and mentoring and, and being there and they're calling us mom and dad. And, and we had hold, held for most of, up until last year, really, that they were too old to adopt. And we had no clue there was such a thing as adult adoption. Um, and so uh, the number 10 who came in our lives says, would you adopt me? And we go, we can't, you're too old. And she says, yes, you can. And she showed us uh, the information. We began researching and looking at it. And she was willing to pay for her. It would have been $800 because she was going to go through a lawyer and whatnot. And we began researching and looking at it. And we realized and found out that actually for less than $200, we can do an adult adoption. And so over the last uh, year, we have adopted uh, seven of the 10, uh, working on some others, uh, but it is a blessing. One of them has decided to move. <laughs> yes, she says, Dad, shut up. Welcome to being a pastor's kid. <laughs> Lisa came uh, and her family came uh, in August to spend a month with us as I was going through my retirement ceremony, and they were a part of that. And then they made the mistake of taking their kids to Colorado Christian University, and uh, their, their middle child here, uh, Keegan. Yes, I know. Shut up, Papa. Too late. <laughs> he found, fell in love with Colorado uh, Christian University and says, Mom, Dad, I want to go there. And their youngest daughter, you'll see, oh, see now at the coffee shop, uh, she also loved Colorado Christian. And so they decided to settle down for at least a year because they're RVers traveling around doing things and they want to get back on the road and do that. But we are blessed to have them with us. Uh, another one of our daughters lives in Florence and uh, going to nursing school. So that is us. That is how we come about 10 girls in our lives. Uh, and hopefully some of you who are having some young people come in your life and you're wondering what God's doing, it may be down that path. Um, and another part of all that, and the reason there's an adult adoption is because of those kids who age out of the foster care without being adopted or going back to their own families. They age out and they come into a family and so they can be a part of that family and, and heirs. And part of my thought in all of this is dealing with, I've had this thought over and over, it's not our study tonight, but I've been thinking about our adoption with Christ. Scripture talks about our adoption. I was talking to my son-in-law the other day and he was talking about the grafting in 
Scripture talks as being grafted in. And if you understand grafting, my grandfather did that uh, with a couple of trees and made some unique uh, trees out of, out of grafts. You are not, it's not about that you can be separated out of that once you're grafted in. I mean, you really have to be cut out to leave that, to leave that family of God. And that's kind of what, when I see with my girls, is they've been grafted in our family. They, it, to take them out would be ripping them apart and ripping us. And so, so it is with our relationship with God. When we accept him, we are grafted in. We are joint heirs. We're not stepchildren. We're not, uh, but it's as if we were born into Christ and joint heirs with Christ. And so uh, just consider that factor here in the Christmas season as we look at Christ's coming and his second coming, uh, ultimately, that we are joint heirs with him. When you look at the scriptures that says you're a royal priesthood, sometimes we lose sight of who we are and whose we are. And we need to keep that in, in focus in our lives because when Satan attacks us, when he takes and tries to say you're not worth it, you're not good enough, you need to remind him, no, I'm grafted in. I am joint heirs with Christ. I am his child. I am uh, a royal priesthood, I am who the scripture says I am. And I think that's, that's important in our walk because sometimes when we lose sight of that, that's when we start getting into molly grubs. That's when we start doubting who we are and start doubting our lives and we start letting some of the things that Satan is trying to draw us away into our life. And when we understand our place and purpose... Our girls understand their place and purpose in our lives and that they are tied in. They are not stepchildren. Whether they choose to be adopted or not, legally, they are adopted by us and no piece of paper will make a difference in that. So just a bit about who we are and then also tied in with who Christ is and who we are in him. I think those are some important things. We started a couple of weeks ago James in James, and I felt that we should continue with James. I think it's in, in line with what Pastor even preached this past Sunday. By the way, the reason I'm here is Pastor and Linda have finally taken a little bit of vacation. Uh, they have not taken much vacation over a number of years, let alone any this year. And as you know, with the political uh, piece that he is engaged in, it really has taken a lot of their time together and also separate and just warm. So they took off Sunday afternoon, headed to the mountains and spent some time in the mountains tomorrow. Uh, in fact, we'll take a moment here and pray for, for Pastor One because he hasn't been feeling well. Uh, here he is trying to enjoy his time with his wife and not feeling well. We prayed for him on Monday night at uh, the all-church prayer time. But uh, tomorrow... He begins his legislative stuff. Uh, tomorrow is the, uh, what do they call it, initiation? <laughs> What's that? Registration. Registration. He, he's getting registered. He's going to be assigned his broom closet, as he said. <laughs> and maybe, maybe his parking space that he has to walk from here to get there because 
he's willing to stir things up, and I, I'm excited that he is there to stir things up. Um, he's not worried about where he sits, where he parks. He's worried about making sure that the standards of Christ is there and that he is pastoring and ministering to them in that, and that's what's vital to him. So as he begins that, let's take a moment and lift him up, lift Linda up. They both are going to Denver tomorrow to uh, be a part of that. Then he has to go back on Friday uh, to finish all that stuff up. Uh, and then he really jumps into it uh, middle of January. So let's take a moment and pray for Pastor. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we lift Pastor and Linda up both. Lord, they need a physical touch from you. As Linda prepares for knee surgery, that you would take and, and just touch her life, that you would heal her supernaturally. But if that's not the case, that you will guide the doctor's hands as they reconstruct this knee, that she might have the, the mobility that she so much needs. Touch pastor as he has been feeling a bit under the weather, Heavenly Father, whether it be cold, flu, whatever it might be, just touch his body. Lord, it's a matter of going strong for so long and suddenly stopping. And he needs your touch upon his life to give him the strength as he goes forward to lead us and lead this state at the state capitol. Lord, tomorrow as they go to Denver to be a light in that dark place, we ask that you would go before them, that you would strengthen them, that you give them the wisdom and insight they need. Let them be found with favor. And let them hear that he's not just an ultra-conservative. He is one that loves you and just wants to share your gospel with those up there. Open those doors, Heavenly Father, for him to touch lives. And let there be a supernatural revival that happens in the state capitol. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, James chapter 2. As I said, Pastor was talking about being engaged in our Christian walk on Sunday. This was a just that I pulled out of it, is that we need to be those warriors that stands up. And I really like the way that he did that, that he brought us up front. Uh, for me, it was a recommitment in a lot of ways. I have been a soldier both in reality and as soldier for Christ, as a chaplain in the army, and now being on the other side, it just is a recommitment to the fact that I am a soldier for Christ. I am walking after that and that I need to be engaged in doing, and we need to be engaged in doing in our lives and our walk. The thing about Christianity compared to most faith is it's an engaged faith. We are expected to be engaged in walking after him, be engaged in what we are doing. It's not a passive faith. Because if you're passive, you're falling backwards, you're not going forward. There's an expectation for us. So James chapter 2. It says, my dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? For example, suppose someone comes into your meeting dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry 
Another comes in who is poor and dressed in dirty clothes. If you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, but you say to the poor one, you can stand over there or else sit on the floor. Well, doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? Listen to me, dear brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? Now, some of us would say, how, how can that be in this modern era that there would be that discrimination of those who come into the church? Now, understand, he's not saying that we accept who they are in what they're doing, but we accept them as individuals who are bought by Christ, who are taken and, and uh, in the image of God, whether they're saved or not, they're in the image of God. We're not looking at denying them, but that doesn't mean we accept them. We see that the church in the Western world specifically, and there are churches, for instance, the Africa... Um, uh, sorry... Austin, the African, uh, not the Episcopal Church, but the Anglican Church, took and rebuked the American Anglican Church several years ago when they started taking and going in the liberal stance like the Episcopal Church did and saying, all are welcome. We're not going to judge anybody. They're all welcome. And everybody's welcome into our church here. But that doesn't mean we expect that they stay in the state that there are. But a lot of the, our American churches have come to the point to say, well, God's love and he doesn't judge anybody and everybody's accepted and we got to accept what, the way they're living. That's not what scripture is saying. Scripture is saying that we accept people in, but there's an expectation that they won't stay in the state that they are. The challenge that we have in our world is that challenge of being the angry Christian. You know what the angry Christian is? We're lashing out at individuals because of their lifestyle, not dealing with the lifestyle itself. And we're shunning people because of who they are, but yet at the same point, there's times that we accept people just because they're certain pillars of the community because they have money. A lot of your mega churches, I've seen this happen, is that they have started off in a solid ground. I've looked at several of the mega churches that seem to have lost their path, and you go back to their history, and we see that they started in a solid ground. They have started with firm preaching on, on Scripture, firm dealing with sin is sin, and then they started to grow. And we see the larger they got, the more afraid they got of losing the money. They lost their way in what God was showing them and what God expected of them. And they began to tickle the ears and be accepting of whatever people were doing instead of holding them to the standard. And the problem that we see here in the book of James that's talking about up front 
is you're looking at the outside and yet not considering where somebody is on the inside. And you're saying to the rich person, come, have a seat here so that you can really give into our coffers so we can have more money, so we can do more things. And yet their life and their lifestyle is not such that should be in that place of honor. They have a lifestyle that is not following what Christ says. I had a friend a number of years ago. I was going to seminary, and he had been in a severe accident um, that had crippled him. And they had some financial struggles because of his unable to really earn a living. She was doing a lot of work, but they were a great couple. And so they didn't have the best clothes. And we were at Spring, in Springfield, Missouri, where we jokingly from the seminary uh, called the Assembly of God headquarters there in Springfield, Missouri, the Blue Vatican. Um, now it's more like the Gray Vatican because they've changed the color of the outside of the building. But, but just a few blocks down was one of the largest churches and many of the headquarters people attended that church. And this is, not on, this is not a knock on the headquarters people at that time because it wasn't really them that did this. But the leadership in that church had really guided their ushers to the point that they said, if, some, if somebody comes in not dressed appropriately, turn them away. Turn them away. And so they had been turned away from that church because they didn't have the dress that fits. We have to watch ourselves and our attitude that we have towards people. Sometimes we will take and play to somebody. In the military, there was times that I played up to those of rank in certain circumstances, but when they came in the chapel, everybody was equal level field. I didn't care who you are, whether you were a four-star general or a private, everybody's equal when they walk through the chapel. You don't get certain treatments during a religious service. Great, you're the commanding general, appreciate that. Give us money for the chapel, but it doesn't make you more or less better than somebody else that is tending. And one of the great examples I, I saw was when I was at Fort Riley, the 1st Infantry Division interim commander, he's a one-star general, he and his wife led our children's church. I thought that was pretty amazing when I got there and found out that we had the one-star general, the, the senior commander, senior person on that installation was leading our children to Christ. It's just amazing. So when we look at this in the book of James, we need to check our hearts. We need to look ourselves. Say, how are we treating people? Are we treating some with greater respect and higher positions than others? Just because 
mayor may walk in here someday. Hopefully, he's coming to see Christ. Doesn't mean that we have to fond over him. Make sure he has the best stuff. We can treat him with respect, but we should be treating him with respect the same way that I had to take and treat Thomas last night. You guys don't know Thomas. I didn't know Thomas until last night. I got a call from Tara. She, uh, she takes and makes sure that the church is cleaned and ready to go. And uh, she called me and said, Rick, we've got somebody wandering the parking lot, and he keeps coming up to the door, and she was a little nervous about it. So I checked our cameras because I can do that by an app and to see who he was, and so we came rushing up here just to find out who he was and found out that he was a homeless man that had, as he put it, lost, got lost to, um, during the day. Some of you may have heard that there is uh, uptick of crimes and murders within the homeless community here in Colorado Springs. And my guess, he walked up the river up this way to get away from the dangers within the, the city because he had a uh, rescue mission uh, ID tag that was hanging from him. And he was clean. He, he had definitely been taken care of in the last several days. Um, and I think he got walking up here and got lost. And he had some other mental uh, challenges. And so after talking to him a bit, we brought him inside, got him some medical care, and they took care of him. But my approach to him was he was created in the image of God. He needed love, he needed care, he needed to show compassion and make sure that he was taken care of. How do you see people makes a big difference in life. Do you see them in the image of Christ or you take and see them by their lifestyle? Because it makes a big difference in how you engage in the world. Being in the army, as you well know, most of you know, based on the news out there, the changes of policy of allowing first, it's been uh, about 12 years ago, 11, 12 years ago, they cut out the policy of don't ask, don't tell. So homosexuals could be openly in, in the military. And then in the last couple of years, they have allowed transgenders. And I've had chaplains come to me and say, how do we deal with this? And sadly, I had seen endorsers put out policies for their chaplains that limited their ministry. And I was somewhat concerned being a of God-endorsed chaplain. How are they going to deal with me? How am I going to be able to continue doing ministry? And when they came out with their policies for us as Assembly of God chaplains, they gave us the ability to do ministry. They said, you can't endorse same-sex marriages, but you need to take care of those people and ensure they know that you, you don't endorse those things, but that you still love on them. And I explained to chaplains that there are missionaries to the various communities, transgenders, homosexuals, and others out there 
who are able to take and take care of these people without compromise. We need to take a page out of their book because we're on a mission field, being in the military. It's not a, it's not a Christian organization. If anybody thought it was, it never was, but it definitely is not today. And learn how to take care of them as a missionary would to those communities without compromise. We need to be looking at this body. How do we meet the LGBABC community that's hurting here in Colorado Springs and yet not compromise in where we're at? Because what we have seen in the Christian community in many of mainline churches, Episcopal and, and others, is they have compromised, right? Because they're saying that, that lifestyle is okay. Scripture says it's not. So they've compromised. But how do we take and touch those lives and reach that community without compromise? How do we love on them? They're hurting. They need the truth. Do we treat them here and say, go stand over there or sit on the floor, but don't dirty us? And that's sometimes our attitude. When somebody comes in who is a fallen nature, we keep them at arm's length at best, if not longer away from that, because we don't want to get dirty. Christ got dirty. How do we love on them? How do we take care of them? How do we avoid treating them in the manner that James talked about? And let them know that there is somebody that loves them where they're at. Things to be watching for and be cautious about and be praying about this. I read this in an article. A couple of uh, legislatures in Colorado are looking at how do we take and protect that community. And pastors talked about how they have engaged within, within the school system. And I was reading this article and this legislator says we need to look at reaching out into places that are not normal like the K through 12s. I'm thinking, what are you engaging with the K through 12s? I can see the 9 through 12s. But there's a challenge there that we need to be looking at in, as a community. How do we keep that from impacting our schools and yet still love them and bring them to Christ? It's a challenge. It's a dichotomy of saying, how do we do this? There was a church, Assembly of God Church, one of our big ones out in California. Um, I was part of the Northern Cal Nevada District of the Assembly of God for about 25 years before moving to Rocky Mountain District. And then one of the big churches out there, they had a program where they took care of, uh, it's kind of respite care, you might say. Somebody could come and leave their handicapped child and the church would take care of them for a few hours. And there was this homosexual couple who would bring their child there, drop them off. So the community knows. The world knows where there's safe places and where people love them and they can tell. 
And that's what Church Briargate needs to be is that church that will love them, but not allow them to stay in the condition that they are. And this church loved on them. In fact, they would take an awesome, the, the gentleman that would drop off the child would say, why don't you stay for the service? And he'd say, no, my partner's waiting for me in the car. We're going to brunch, blah, blah, blah. So they leave their child to be ministered to, to be shared the gospel with, knowing it must have been doing some good for them while they went and took care of themselves. And after asking them several times, eventually they said, okay, so they started attending. And they didn't flaunt themselves, and the people knew who they were and knew about them, and all they did was love on them. And the pastor preached the gospel straightforward, and they loved on him. And over a period of time, at a certain point, both of the gentlemen went to the pastor and says, we can't continue to live like we are. They, they, the wording was, they can't change who we are, but if we were going to be Christian, we, then we'll be celibate the rest of our lives. Because based upon this, and what changed them was that church just loved on them, but the pastor didn't change what they were, didn't accept what they were doing, just preached the gospel. And the church just loved on them. And it made a difference. So when I talk about the angry Christian, if we are a church that's just angry at those people, what impact are we having? We're more pushing them away than we are taking and bringing them in. And if we loved on them, they would see that love, they would feel that love, and then it's holding them accountable by the scripture and by word that they will change within themselves and let God do that and see the amazing impact that God can do in a life like that. So what is your view? How is it? It says... This discrimination, the end of, there in verse 4, this discrimination shows that your judgments are guided by evil motives. If we allow somebody to come in and give them praise for who they are and not see the change that they have or they should have, why are we doing it? It's so whether we can, when we talk about evil motives, I will tell you that it's financial gain. One thing about Church of Briargate we're not about the financial gain. Yes, we want to build a, a building, and we need the funds to do so, and there's other things that we do, but it's not about a financial gain. It's about seeing souls one. pastor has often said, it's not about building church about Brarigate. It's about building the kingdom of God, and that's why each Sunday we pray for various churches because they're part of the kingdom of God, and we are just one place. So whether we ever build a building or not, it's not as important as long as we're engaged in the lives and building the kingdom. Verse 5. Listen to me, dear brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? We go back to Matthew 5 where it says, Blessed are the poor. Remember that one? Take a minute. Look at Matthew 5. We call it the Beatitudes, right? I like how God's Word version 
puts these out. New, new Living is a good, good on it, but I've come to love how the God's Word version says. It says, blessed are those who recognize, they, this is uh, chapter 5, verse 3 in Matthew, blessed are those who recognize they are spiritually helpless. The kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Spiritually helpless. If you want to see the kingdom of God, you want to take and have that power in your life, you first got to realize you can't do it alone. The challenge that we have as individuals is the me-do-it attitude. Right? How many have taken and said, God, here, you take this. And you take a step away and then you go back and grab it back from them. Kind of that two-year-old, no, me do it, right? Blessed are those who recognize their spiritual helpless. Blessed are those who mourn, they will be comforted. Blessed are those who are gentle, they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for God's approval, they will be satisfied. It's having the right motives. Blessed are those who show mercy, they will be treated mercifully. Blessed are those whose thoughts are pure, they will see God. Blessed are those who make peace, they will be called children of God. Then it talks about the persecution. Blessed are those who are persecuted for doing what God approves of. And that brings us back to James chapter 2. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, didn't God choose poor people in the world to become rich in faith and to receive the kingdom that he promised to those who love him? Yet you show no respect to poor people. Don't rich people oppress you and drag you into court? Hmm. We latch on to people that don't really care for us. Right? Don't they curse the good name of Jesus, the name that was used to bless you? We've got to be cautious. Who are we giving the place of honor to? Do they deserve that? We're doing it because of who they are and shunning anybody else because they don't fit a mold for us. Consider where you were at. I know some people's stories. Sometimes we forget where we came from. We have this tradition in the military, those who have been in the military, understand this and know it. It's the us and them mentality in the military. The enlisted versus officers. The officers are the us. Look at us. We're good. We're better. You know. Enlisted is them. They do all the grunt work. When I was a young private, I had a leader come to me and, and ask me, you know, what do you want to be? You want to be an enlisted or you want to be an officer? And he was enlisted. So it was kind of interesting to 
that he came to me and asked that question. And he said, enlisted work the gas station, officers own the gas station. And so oftentimes I've seen it throughout my career, people stumbling over the various ranks. They're stumbling over them. I mean, they... <laughs> and oftentimes they're not that good of people. They made it, but they're not that good of people. And I started off as an E1, the lowest rank you can be as a private. And I joined at 17. I started off as that. I spent nine years enlisted. I was about a month out from pinning on my E6, my staff sergeant. And uh, when I took my commission to be a chaplain candidate, because my goal since I was 10 years old was to be a chaplain. But I had such a draw to be in the military. I joined at 17 to have the experience. And I married my first sergeant's daughter when I was an E2, and those who have been in the military know that that is a dangerous place to be. <laughs> because training accidents happen. <laughs> um, and I often tell people the reason we succeeded our first few years of marriage is because I was too, too scared to screw up. I always like to tell that story when I was in the uh, company commander and first sergeant's course teaching it and watch the first sergeant's twitch as they thought about their daughter and one of their privates. <laughs> and when I got, when I took my commission back then, uh, they had a couple different styles of, uh, of the patrol caps, we call them now, we call them BDU caps, our covers. And the one that I wore most often had a ear flap in it. Not that you ever put the ear flaps down because then you'd be in outer uniform even though it was provided for you to keep warm. Um, but in that flap, I put my E5 sergeant rank because I didn't want to forget where I came from. I wanted to remember that as I moved up, I was somebody else. And I didn't want to become so full of myself because I've seen it that I forgot how to take care of people, especially those young soldiers. And there was times in my career that I saw sometimes that how they treated some officers and I thought if they're treating those people that way and it was negative, then how are they treating the privates? Because it's probably a whole lot worse. But I never wanted to forget where I came from because it was important in my ability to do ministry and to lead properly within that. So I kept that back there. Um, and there might have been at least one time that Diddy would smack me on the backside of my head and remind me <laughs> that that rank is back there <laughs> of the sergeant stripes. I get my head back, screwed on back straight, and, and keep on going. It's not about wallowing in the past, but sometimes we need to remember that we were that poor person, whether financially in the physical sense, but spiritually we were poor. And there's somebody that's going to come through these doors that needs you to speak in their lives because you know where they're coming from. 
I'm a third-generation minister on both sides of my family. My dad was a pastor of a church, and there's this young lady that started attending the church. She got saved and started attending, and she was wearing the best clothes that she had. But she didn't come from the best lifestyle. But she was one of the best she had. She didn't have to buy new, and she was wearing... Summertime, she was wearing a summer dress, you know, those small straps. But we're talking this is the 1970s. And back in the 1970s, uh, women wore long dresses to church and high collars and, and didn't wear pants very often, but she was wearing a summer dress with fusquetti straps, and some of the people started talking about her in the church. How dare her come in this way and be like that? She ended up leaving the church, and the last time I saw her was a number of years down the road. She, I was working at a bus station helping my mom out, and she came through on the bus, and she had gotten into a different lifestyle. How we treat people affects their eternity. Every time I get up to speak, I'm humbled. I'm humbled that I can be here. Speaking to you guys tonight, I don't take it lightly because I know that my life, what I say here from the word and what I do, impacts your eternity. So I got to be cautious about that. I often told company commanders when I was in combat, especially the first time when I was in Iraq, my son-in-law were both in the same unit together, and so he had to endure me in my ministry. He survived. Um, but I often told the company commanders, I'll trade you places because you might have their life in your hands, but I have their eternity. And it would be easier just to have their lives in my hands than their eternity. And my point to them, especially those who are Christians, is you have their eternity too. You're not just sending them out that they might lose their life, but what you say, what you do, how you lead them impacts their life in eternity and what you do and what you say and how you treat people impacts their eternity. How do you treat your, your workers if you're leaders? How do you treat those around you? And it makes a difference in their eternity, even if they don't know you're a Christian, but even more if they know that you're a Christian. And I know this from personal in the fact that my father-in-law, who was three days old going into basic training, my wife was born while he was in basic training, and he observed, and this is part of what I, why I did what I did as a chaplain, and even now as a minister, is not about just glorifying God, but I know it impacts lives. He saw a chaplain doing some things that he did before he was saved, and he said, if that's what it is to be a Christian... I did that, what difference does it make? And it, he lived his life in that manner the rest of his life. We can only hope that just before he died that he had made a difference and had his relationship with God changed. What you do makes a difference. How you treat people makes a difference. Verse 8, you are doing right if you obey this law from the highest authority. Love your neighbors as you love yourself. 
If you favor one person over another, you're sinning. And this law convicts you of being disobedient. You ever think, think about it in that way? If someone obeys all of God's laws except one, that person is guilty of breaking all of them. After all, the one who said never commit adultery is the same one who said never murder. If you do not commit adultery but you murder, you become a person who disobeys God's laws. Now think about that in things that God has told you not to, whether it be in the Ten Commandments or anywhere else in Scripture. He's told you specifically leave something alone. And if you choose to take and engage in that, then you're breaking all of God's laws. What he's saying is, is you break one law, you've sinned. It's not about which sin. Sin is sin. Sometimes within the Christian world, we put different rankings of sin, don't we? Put one sin worse than the other. The reality is, sin is sin. One of the greatest challenges I think we have in, our, in, our, in this is where it says, love your neighbor as you love yourself. And the challenge is, do you love yourself? And I'm not today talking about thinking yourself more highly than you are. Do you love yourself? Do you understand your role and responsibilities as you graft it in with Christ? It's your royal priesthood. Your joint heirs. When you understand that, then you can love yourself because you understand God's love for you. And when you understand God's love for you, now you can take and reach out to those and love them in the same way. That's an important piece. Because we can love, can't love them any more than God loves them. And God loves them pretty a whole lot. Think about where you were at. And his love pulled you out of that and placed you where you're at today. So when you start looking at yourself and you start cutting yourself down, what are you doing? You're taking and disparaging who God said you were. Psalms 139 says you're wonderfully and miraculously made. He thinks about you, his thoughts about you are more than the grains of sand. So when you start tearing yourself down, you're saying God created junk. He didn't know what he was doing when he, he created you and made you. And then you're going to start looking at others less too. We've got to look at ourselves the way God looks at us. We've got to take and see ourselves in that way because as we love ourselves, we understand God's love and we take and love others. And now we have compassion upon them. When I rolled up on the gentleman last night here at the church and I see him standing there and I began to talk to him, I had compassion upon him. First, I had to make sure he was not a threat, make sure that things were safe, but at the same point, I had compassion on him because here's a man that just needed some love of God. Don't know what his day was like. I could tell that he could probably easily get lost in life, and that's what put him on the street in the first place, and he just needed to take and be loved on. 
Verse 12, talk and act as people who are going to be judged by laws that bring freedom. No mercy shall be shown to those who show no mercy to others. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Remember, there's a day that we're going to stand before God and be held accountable for how we live life and how we treated those around us. Again, I, I, I see that a lot of the churches have swung that pendulum too far. And they have compromised what the word says. And there's a point that we have to keep it in a place that we love them and we show mercy to them, but that doesn't mean we, hold, keep, we allow them to keep where they're at. It's the reason that I'm teaching a class, and for those in my class, there's a couple of them here, uh, teaching a life group on shepherding and being a shepherd is to help people understand how to love them and bring people around. So those in my, my small group or my life group, there's nothing this, this month. We'll get back in January. Sorry about that. <laughs> but understanding how to shepherd people and bring them to God's love and show them to, how to grow They've accepted Christ. Now, how do I go from here? Where do I need to go? We need to be doing that, people. Pastor often asks, who's shepherding you? Who's your accountability? Who is, is leading you? But who are you shepherding? Who are you guiding? Who are you leading? Who are you helping along? Because there's always somebody that is newer in the faith than you are. They need that guidance in that direction that you can bring to them. Verse 14. Verse four, beginning in verse 14 is really some of what Pastor was talking about on Sunday. I have often pe had people say, but I don't need to do anything because I have faith. Well, you've got to have the balance that Scripture talks about. The Scripture talks about faith without works, but it also talks about works without faith. It is not one or the other. It's both and. How we live our lives should be revealed by what we do. Because God has told us to be engaged in life. He called us to make disciples, not to get people saved. Catch that? We look at the Great Commission, and we automatically think, well, we're supposed to get people saved, but we don't do anything after they get saved. Not incumbent upon us to get people saved. That's God's job. Our job is to make disciples. And that's kind of what we're talking about in this next section here, beginning in verse 14. My brothers and sisters, what good does it do if someone claims to have faith but doesn't do any good things? Can this kind of faith save him? Suppose a believer, whether a man or woman, needs clothes or food, and one of you tells that person, God be with you. Stay warm and make sure you eat enough. 
if you don't provide for that person's physical needs, what good does it do? In the same way, faith by itself is dead if it doesn't cause you to do any good things. If it doesn't compel you to be engaged in the world around you, what good is your faith? It'll get you to heaven because you believed and you're at least doing that. But those who are really truly engaged in the work, you're going to be compelled to do something. To be engaged and be speaking in somebody's life. It's why a pastor can stand up here confidently Sunday after Sunday and say, by noon tomorrow, God's going to give you somebody to talk to. And I'm sure there are many in here going, at, by 12 o'clock on Monday, you're looking at your watch and say, well, God didn't, didn't give me anybody. Really? Nobody to talk to? Nobody to engage? You sure about that? Or are you avoiding? I take and engage on those robocalls. I get the robocalls. They seem to get less and less at times. Then they pick back up and I engage in those robocalls. I'll push, I'll push so I talk to somebody. It used to just frustrate me. And I, I know you can hang up, you can ignore the call, whatever, but it frustrate me. It interrupt my day. I become less frustrated with the robocalls when I answer them and when I talk to somebody. And I tell them, you called me unsolicited, so we're going to talk about what I want to talk about. And how is your faith with Jesus? Now, I've had strong engagements with some, because you begin to know where they're from, <laughs> who have tried to convince me that Muhammad was the great salvation. I've had some get angry at me. Most will hang up on me, and I've had one that transferred me to a porn line. Said, Whoa. <laughs> Check my bill, make sure there was no extra charges on that one. But I become less frustrated because I have that opportunity to engage. I don't know if anybody's ever engaged them. I've had a few that say, yes, I'm a Christian. And so I ask them, what can I pray for you? Well, my mom's this and I have this and that and the other. And we take a moment and we pray. And then we hang up. I consider those God-given opportunities. So I take them. And share with them the love of Christ. Sometimes they try to force their script in and I just say, no, we're going to talk about what I want to talk about. When you're engaged in the word, engaged in your prayer life and engaged with Christ in a way it will compel you to be engaged in your world around you. It will compel you to be engaged within the church and engaged wherever you're at. 
our faith is not sedentary. It's to be engaged. What are you doing to engage the world around you? Verse 18, another person might say, you have faith, but I have good things. Show me your faith apart from the good things you do. I will show you my faith by the good things I do. You believe that there is one God, that's fine. The demons also believe that, and they tremble with fear. Great, you believe there's one God. So does the demons. What makes you different than them? Does your life show something different? Do people know there's something different? We have the app. Get the name of it for you, if I can remember it. Outreach. There's an app called Encounter Outreach. And it shows your neighbors around and shows how you've engaged with them. Because you can take and, and say, are you praying for them? Have you t- talked to them about Jesus? So when you log in the app, unfortunately, whenever you log wherever you're at, it shows you where you're at. But when you log in at home, see the neighbors around, have you engaged them? Do they know who you are? Are you making a difference in the area you're at? The point of the author here is the fact that your faith should compel you. I'll leave the last part of James 2 for you to take a look at. It essentially talks about how Abraham's faith was a word to him by the fact that he followed after God and did God's approval. And he was called a friend of God. Are you called a friend of God? Do you know you are? Not only are you one of his children, but you are a friend of God. It talks about how the prostitute Rahab helped save the spies. It ends with verse 26. A body that doesn't breathe is dead. In the same way, faith that does nothing is dead. What are you engaged in? What are you doing? And if you're not engaged, you need to relook at life. Relook at what you're doing. That's why I don't believe in ministers retiring. They may stop being in the pulpit, but they're not retired. They should still be engaging, just as we all should be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we ask that we would learn how to love the community we're in, not to leave it in the way that it is or not just to accept them, carte blanche, but but Heavenly Father, to love them to your saving knowledge, that you change them and their life in amazing ways, that we would be engaged in the world around us, 
that we do not be hiding our light under a bushel, but we would let it shine and touch the lives. As pastor is even being our example and stepping out and being in the state legislature because you asked him to engage the world that he is in. Let us follow that example and follow your example and be engaged in our world around us and just loving people to understand your truth in your gospel. As we leave this place, Heavenly Father, lay upon our heart what we need to be doing so that the world will know that you are a God that loves them and a God that wants them to be joint heirs with you. Encourage each one, Heavenly Father, and we ask this in your precious and holy name, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. See you Sunday. Have an amazing week. And I will say by noon tomorrow,